Isn't it great to know that you're loved to that extent? It's overwhelming, the reckless, the, it's not careless, but it is without restraint, the love that God has for us. That's where our text starts when we started earlier in Colossians 3. It says that we are chosen of God. He picked us out, that we are uh, holy, that we're set apart to Him. He's claimed us for Himself and that we are beloved. All the amazing, immeasurable love of God is poured out upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's poured out upon us in our lives as we live day by day. And here's the great thing, because we are loved, because He meets all of our needs, because He is sufficient for every circumstance and situation, because He fills us, if you will, we're able to splash out on others. We're able to love others. We're able to bear with one another. We're able to forgive one another. We're able to have compassion toward one another. We're able to have mercy toward one another. As we talk about being known by our love, in our context today, I want to make sure that we understand the context because I'm going to make at least a couple of statements that may challenge you a little bit, or the Scripture does, and, and I want to make sure that I communicate clearly. But in the context of what we're talking about today, this application is how do we love each other well? And this is not a husband and wife conversation. This is not a parent and child conversation or child and parent conversation. This is brothers and sisters in Christ. Those of us who are together in a local congregation, those of us who come together on Sundays and share coffee and, and pastries and Bible study class, those of us who go, get together for small group Bible studies, those of us who may work alongside of each other or go to school alongside of each other, educate our children alongside of each other, those of us who live life together, we get together during the week, we get together at other times. How do we genuinely care for one another? How do we love one another well. And this matters. The context matters, but the application matters. And so we're talking about friendships. We're talking about Christian brother and sister relationships. And our focal point is uh, th those two verses, verses 14 and 15, where he says, and again, in context, he's already identified the things we're to do and the challenges that face that. Then he says, and above all these, put on love. Which in this translation says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I will tell you that I think that there's a specific binding that he's talking about here. I don't think this is binding all those virtues together or binding simply our character together. I believe he's talking about binding our hearts together, binding people together. And the context for that is just in the previous chapter, in Colossians chapter 2, just the first couple of verses... He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, his concern for them, and for those in Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. And here's his concern, listen, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, how? Being knit together in love to teach, or to reach all the riches of the full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Jesus. What's his concern? Their hearts be knit together, be bound together, be tied up together in love. This love which binds, it binds people. It binds believers. It connects us together. And I will tell you that we need to work on our friendships. We need to be better friends. We need to ha have the kind of friendships and relationships that glorify God. We've already seen in this text that we're commanded to love one another, that we're commanded to open our hearts to one another, that we're commanded to intentionally seek out relationships. One of the challenges there, though, is that 
people are messy, and people are, are sometimes just hard to get along with. <laughs> and so when there come challenges in those relationships, we don't quit, we don't give up, we bear with one another. When there's an offense or a conflict, we forgive one another. We address those things. Here's the challenge I, that I find as a pastor. A lot of times we spend a lot of times focusing on our marriages, and we do. We need to spend more time focusing on our marriage. Amen? You can intentionally focus on your marriage, and you should. Parenting. Parenting is a massive task, responsibility. It requires the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It requires continual effort on your part. By the time you get experience as a parent, your kids are grown and having kids of their own. And so you have to depend upon God's truth and the process of all of that. So that's important. You need to work on that. But what we tend to just kind of let slide is friends because, you know, friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And you can take advantage of, you can be slack when it comes to nurturing interpersonal relationships. And so how do we do this? This text today is how do you nurture, how do you cultivate those friendships? And I do want to give you kind of a specific application here, if I may. The application that I would ask is not that we talk about, I just love everybody. I don't think you can love 100 people like we're going to be talking about today. And I want you to move the application from just a broad general statement and also out of your family relationships. This is not, we're going to get to husbands and wives, parents, kids, and all of that in the next section. And so that's not this. This is what I would like for you to think of is who are your two, who are your three, who are your four, who are your six, who are your buddies, who are your friends, who are the relationships that are not related to you, and that's not some generic hundred, but two to six people that you cultivate relationships with and deepen those relationships. Now, you will see those expand, and we'll talk about that later. But again, I'm looking at a specific a specific application here for us. How do I become a better friend? How do I get friends? How many of us can say that we have six close friends? Really close friends. And I believe in the, current, in the church and in the Christian church that, that there are a number of people who can, and many of you can certainly attest to that. But I will tell you that outside of the church, it is uncommon to find somebody who can say they have six deep, lifelong or close friends that they really invest their lives in. And we need to be a model of this, not only because it's a good idea and it's good for us and it's good for them, but because it's what glorifies God. And I believe that it is specifically here, it, 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 it refines and develops the character of Christ in us. And so how do we cultivate, how do we nurture, how do we re- maintain and grow those, those key relationships? Well, above all these things, Put on love, which binds people, which binds everything together. Now, in English, of course, love is just the word love, and it can mean a lot of different things. I love my wife. I love my kids. I really love my grandkids. All right, I love them all. Okay, don't don't misunderstand me, all right? But I, I, I love my family. That's one kind of love, but I love sandwiches. I love chocolate. Uh, those have very different connotations and understandings in degree, all right? They're, they're diff- different things that we say we love. In the Greek, of course, you know, there are at least four different words that are used that are commonly interpreted love in the New Testament. The one we're going to look at 
is the one the New Testament talks about the most. It is the word agape. Are you familiar with the word? Are you familiar with it? Uh, we had a church in association in Columbia that I used to work with whose name was Agape Baptist Church, and they determined to change the name of the church because they kept being addressed as Agape, Agape, <laughs> Agape Church. Uh, and so they, they changed the name rather than just explaining it. I want to make sure that we understand the context of the word. Agape, Agapao, is a word that's used 249 times in the New Testament, interpreted love. It is the word most often used in the New Testament. For love. Now, the reason that's interesting is because when you look at classical Greek writings, Attic Greek, Koine Greek, extra biblical Greek writings, it is the word least used for love. They'll use phileo or sorge. They'll use other other words, eros, for love. But but this is the least used word, and yet it is the word most used together in. To, to define the kind of love that we're called to have. This word does not deal primarily about feelings, this warm fuzzy. It is not primarily about just simply the things that we say. Matter of fact, when the Lord Jesus was talking about the kind of love that we're supposed to have in John chapter 15, verse 13, you will be familiar with the, with the verse that's on the screen. What is the greatest love that you can have for someone? Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Can, can we dial that back? Most of us are not going to have to die for the sake of friendship. Jesus displayed that love. Of course, he's talking in the context of his disciples. This is John 15. This is the upper room discourse. This is the, the last, last moments, the last hours before his crucifixion. And he's describing love for them, and he's portending, he's telling them that he's going to the cross as an expression of his love for God, but as an expression of his love for them in this context, to lay down his life for them. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Most of us are not going to have to die for our friendship, but can you at least dial it back and say that the expression of agape love is the willingness to go to extreme inconvenience for the benefit of another? The willingness to go to extreme inconvenience? The willingness to be sacrificial? The willingness to be made uncomfortable? The willingness to yield when necessary, my own comfort, my, my, those, those things which please me for the benefit and for the sake of another. The context here is Christ going to the cross for the benefit of his disciples. And, of course, one of his disciples was John, the apostle. He's known as the apostle of love. And in 1 John chapter 3, he reflects on Jesus laying down his life. And he elaborates on this, giving us instructions on how we're to love one another. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love. How do we know? It's what Jesus did, that he laid down his life for us. And then he comes to the exhortation, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that is an ultimate extreme. Short of that, though, how do we apply that? You keep reading. Verse 17 says, But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart toward him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. So how does this love express itself? What is agape love? How do we culture, cultivate? How do we nurture? How do we grow the friendships and the relationships that God would have us have for one another? It is both actions, it is deeds, and truth. It is all about doing something for the benefit of another. 
acting at what is often personal cost for the benefit of another. You do that, and that will be the expression of a love that binds you together. And so if you're taking notes, on your outline, there's a place for you to follow along. What I have put, and I think is beneficial, is for you to intentionally do those things that benefit others. Now, you have to be careful because in, 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 in selfish, in, in the flesh friendships, you want others to do those things that benefit you. I need you to do this for me. I need you to do that for me. I want us to be friends because this is what I get out of it. And certainly, you do benefit from those kind of relationships. But this is an externally focused thing. And that's why I say you can't do this for 100 people at a time. Pick, ask God to lead you to, identify four, five, six, however many people you have the capacity, the time. Ask God to increase your capacity for people that you can intentionally go deeper in relationships with. Cultivate your friendships. It needs to be more than just hanging out. It needs to be more than just a barbecue occasionally. It needs to be more than, than, than just having fun or just this or just that. Though I'm not belittling the time spent together with friends. You can't do this without time. But I mean being willing to roll up your sleeves, being willing to be intentional, to think it through, to, to ask yourself how you can invest in these friendships, how you can be sensitive to things that are going on in their life and be used by God to meet those needs. One of the definitions that I learned for Agape years ago was simply to, to uh, act in the best interest of another, to work for the good of someone else. And you will find this is repeated again and again and again throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul was writing. And if you know the context of Romans 14 and 15, there were people disagreeing about things. They were church members, and there were some from a Jewish background, some from a Gentile background, some who had been saved out of idol worship, and they were disagreeing about, uh, about what to eat, what kind of food they could eat, about what to drink, about what days to worship. And here's what Paul says. Even when there's, when there's some disagreement going on, he says, verse, chapter 15, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor, his brothers in Christ in the context, for his good to build him up. It's a word that's often used, uh, translated exalt. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then the very first part of the next verse, for, here's our example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ didn't please himself. But it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's saying even as our example is Christ, as Christ is our life, we need to emulate what he's done and be willing to take the steps, the cost for the benefit of someone else. Now, in this text, in, in our Colossians chapter 3 text, the next idea is something, he says something that is often coupled with love, love and peace, Irene, Irene. If you have the name Irene, your name is Peace. Irene, uh, and uh, uh, peace and love are so often connected in the New Testament. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. Now, again, context. In the context of the body, you are called in one body. And I will dial this down. In the context of a local assembly, those who have come together in a covenantal relationship to, to serve God, to glorify God, to invest their lives in one another and in the work and the mission that God has called us to. We need to allow Christ to rule. Now the word rule there is often, or it, it's probably 
understood, interpreted to mean umpire or referee, one who arbitrates, one who is willing to make the call. Now, there are going to be times in your relationships when it's going to be challenging, it's going to be hard. They're going to irritate you. They're going to get on your nerves. And there'll be times when you need a referee. How many of you have raised children and you felt like you were the referee? You get your kids together in a room and it's like there's something going on and you're the referee. And sometimes you're called in to be the referee. Dad, fix this. You know, come, come do this. But a lot of times when there's a conflict going on, they don't want you to referee. They want you to stay out so they can, they can work this out. But the, the referee, the idea here is that we allow peace. We allow the peace of Christ to make the call when there are frustrations and disagreements. Why? Look at the word there. Um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Plural. You have at least two. There's more than one heart. There's more than one person. We're talking about between people. And so, when there is conflict, or when there is frustration, when there is something that would uh, 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 frustrate the unity, the peace, you come back and you establish peace, the peace of Christ, as the referee that makes the call. We know that what is important is not so much our personal preferences or our personal desires, but Christ. He is the head, and His goal is unity. His goal is is peace in the body. So we agree to allow Christ to referee our disputes. Now, this is where I want to be very careful because some of you are going to hear me say, and I don't want you to hear me say this. I want to re- the context is king, and the context of the application of this is king. But I will tell you that unity matters to God. Unity in His body matters to Christ. Read the New Testament again and again and again, and particularly in the book of 1 Corinthians and the follow-up at 2 Corinthians, even in the conflict that was at, at, in Thessalonica, even in Christ's letters to the churches, again and again and again, Paul, writing to Titus uh, and giving him instructions, deals with the issue of maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Now, it is not peace at the expense of truth. It is not peace at the expense of doctrine. But it is peace at the expense of personal preferences that are not core foundational truths. You have to be willing to get along with people. You have to be willing to to be gracious and to love people even in disagreement. Can you love somebody you disagree with? I want you to think about that for a moment. We had a big issue... Years ago, this was years ago, we had a big issue where someone made this statement publicly that if you love me, you will approve my lifestyle. And their lifestyle was not a scriptural, not a godly, not a moral lifestyle. And it took us months of teaching and praying and talking and conversations to come to the point where we were able to I believe it ultimately clearly explained both to that individual and to the congregation, because we love you, we cannot approve or affirm your choice. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can love someone and love them deeply and love them dearly and still disagree with them. My dad used to say, I reserve the right to be wrong." And I give you the same right. I'm going to let you be wrong. 
and still love you. Now, there are key core foundational things. I'm not talking about uh, the issues of salvation by grace through faith. I'm not talking about the person of Christ. I'm not talking about the Trinity. I'm not talking about these, these truths that, 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 con- that God uses to transform our lives into the image of His Son by which we are saved, the Word of God that, 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 that conforms us and, and shapes us. I'm not even saying foundational convictions need to be compromised. You need to stand on your convictions. What I'm saying is that the grace of God, we always speak the truth. We speak the truth and our convictions in love. And one of the things that we learned back in Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15 are we will have differing convictions on behaviors, on things we can do and things we cannot do, and we extend grace and we make self-sacrifices for the benefit of one another in those convictions. I hope that makes sense. It means that I'm willing to say, well, a light, silly illustration, but it may matter. When I went to, I went to seminary in New Orleans, I think it was 1984, 1985. Uh, in New Orleans, by the way, in case you do not know, has great coffee. Really, really good coffee. All right? And I'm a coffee drinker. I like coffee. And you can go down to Jackson Square, and you can go to Cafe Du Monde, and you can get the CDM coffee that is really, really good. They put a lot of cream and a lot of sugar in it, but it's still really good coffee. And there are other types of coffee that you can get, particularly down in the Morgan City, home of Thibodeau area. they got some real Cajun Creole chicory coffee, really strong. And I really got to where I was consuming a lot of that stuff in seminary. I had seminary classes that I needed to stay awake in. I was also working as a minister to the deaf at a church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where I met Suzanne, by the way, which is a great, great blessing. I think God may have sent me there just for that purpose. Hallelujah. Suzanne, my wife. Uh, But I was driving back and forth on the weekend, plus I was working outside of school hours, and I was drinking a lot of coffee at the time. And I came across a guy at seminary whose conviction that it was that coffee and Coca-Cola's And anything basically other than water and juice was a sin that Christians were not to participate in. And he and I were not friends. (laughs) He would come to class and he'd say, how much coffee have you had today? And of course, I'd tell him, I don't know, 10 cups, 12 cups. Been drinking coffee all morning long, going to be drinking coffee all day long. He'd get kind of red in the face and he said, you know that you're to, you're to be careful about what you put in your body. You know that there are some things Christians just don't do, so they're not a negative impact. I mean, and he would give me a sermon on coffee and the sins of coffee. And I would just say, chapter and verse, buddy, chapter and verse. Show me, show me. And he would take me to passages of Scripture that talked about glorifying God in your body. And, and, and by the way, just in case you're wondering, I do not have the conviction that coffee is a sin. I believe coffee is one of God's great blessings. I'm just going to lay that out there. And I have the, the freedom and the strength of consciousness to, conscience to enjoy all of God's great blessings when it comes to food and when it comes to particularly coffee. I'm happy to enjoy those things. But he took up on himself his duty to help me understand this fault in my life and to overcome it. How long was it before I, I started avoiding him in the halls? How long would it have taken you? Not very. 
not very, of course, it didn't matter. He would chase me down in the halls. But again, I don't know why I became his project, but I, I became his project. Here, here's what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to convey here. When there are things that irritate you about someone that are not clear prescriptions and are not clear prohibitions, but are personal convictions, you need to extend grace and you need to act in the best interest of someone else. Now, I did not, I did not see how me not drinking coffee would help him at all. And so I continued to drink coffee. <laughs> but I want, to, want you to understand that even when we disagree, we can love one another. We can care for one another. You know this. You know this in, 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 in your life. We need to recognize the call to pursue peace in our intimate friendships and relationships in the context of these relationships that we're talking about here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, by the way, in your outline, it probably says 1 Corinthians 10, 10. That's a typo on my part. That should be 1.10. I, I typed that wrong. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's setting up something big here. I appeal to you. I beg you. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Wow. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, he's got a particular context, and he's dealing with a conflicted body where there are groups of people, but that's the principle. We need to pursue peace in our relationships. And even when there is legitimate disagreements, we need to be those who express grace to one another. We need to be willing to put our differences behind us for the sake of unity. Even in Romans chapter 14, Verses 19 and 20, that same context that we just read in Romans 15. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What does that mean? Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. He's saying we take, make those sacrifices. We do those things that are necessary. We make Peace, a priority. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so, he comes to this next portion of this in Colossians chapter 3, and he moves right to something that I believe is very important. Colossians chapter 3, that last phrase in verse 15 Just to read the whole verse, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, there's your context, and be thankful. And be thankful. Now I've read a lot of commentaries in preparation for this and in our study of Colossians chapter 3, and some of these guys I think just take things out of context. And they take the thankfulness that is used here to say, and we're just simply thankful to God. We're always thankful to God. Now, we're going to get to that a little bit later in this passage. And yes, we're to be thankful to God. But I believe that the context here is that we're to be people who thank and who are appreciative of one another. You guys familiar with the phrase, I'm much obliged? Are you familiar? If you're old, you probably are older. But much obliged, much obliged, much obliged. That word comes from the same word as obligated. I'm much obligated. I'm grateful. 
I'm obligated to you. And that is a biblical concept. You remember Romans chapter 8? No, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans chapter 13, where he's talking about being good citizens and the role of government, by the way, which is a great study and one we might should have done today since it's July the 3rd. But it's a great study. But he comes after that, and he's talking about what we owe one another. He says, don't, don't neglect to pay your taxes. But he goes on to talk about debt, and he says, owe no one anything except one thing. What is it you're to owe one another? What are you obligated to, to one another? What is the indebtedness that you have to one another? To love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this one word, in this one phrase, this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does that mean? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's an obligation given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ to be good friends, to deepen our relationships, to work on those things. And then he sums up the next step. Be thankful. Context matters. Be thankful. Be thankful to one another. Do you guys get thank you cards? Do you send thank you cards? I love it. The ladies are going nodding yes, and the men are looking at me like that. I don't know what that means. And it, which may not be entirely accurate. All right, But I do believe that we have a fairly significant deficit in how we express our appreciation to one another. I do know that most people that I serve alongside of in the church do not expect any appreciation. As a matter of fact, when we call people out to acknowledge something wonderful that they've done, most of the time I get, oh, don't do that. I don't want people to know. But I want you to understand that in the context of Life Church, we need to express our appreciation for those who serve God by serving us, by serving the family of faith in the things that we do. And it, 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 every aspect, those who teach, those who load out and those who load in, those who coordinate vacation Bible school or teach a class or, or, or lead a ministry, those who uh, take care of the vans and the transportation, those who are serving by doing accounting, bless their hearts, that's not something God has gifted me with. Those who have the gift of administration and use it in the life of a church. you understand what I'm saying? We need to be those at a congregational level that are continually expressing our appreciation to people, not that people do it in order to be acknowledged, but because it's our privilege to do so. But in your relationships, I want you to think about the last time you told one of your friends how much you really appreciated them. This word thankful, the word Greek word in this text that is used for thankfulness is eucharistos. Eucharistos. Same where we get Eucharist from. But it is the only place in the New Testament that is used. And it's used in the context of us being people who are willing to, and verbal and practical, in our expression of appreciation. Now, I want to just take a personal moment here and, and tell you that I appreciate you. And that I love you and that I thank you. I'm grateful for the privilege that God has given to me to be the pastor of this congregation. It is a great blessing. And it is a great joy almost all the time. And when it's not, it's not your fault. 
It's because there are times when I can get my eyes off of Christ, when I can get my eyes off of His glory, when I can get my eyes on myself. And I am grateful for your encouragement. I am grateful for your patience. I am grateful for your friendship. I love you guys. Now what I want you to do is to be able to express appreciation to someone else. And when someone tells you thank you, can I encourage you to receive it? Okay. So, here's a little exercise. When you tell somebody thank you, look them in the eye. Look them in the eye. If you're physical, shake a hand. Put a hand on a shoulder appropriately. Make contact with them and express to them how much you're grateful for their presence in your life. It may be over a specific thing they've done, a gift they have given, time they have spent, their thoughts. Or it may be simply that you appreciate their personality and their presence in your life. And you look at them and say, listen, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate how God uses you in my life, how I appreciate your sense of humor, how I appreciate your rule-keeping, how I appreciate your exhortation, how I appreciate your joy, how I appreciate your whatever it is, and express appreciation to someone. And listen, if you're the one that they're talking to, don't look away and mumble backwards and kind of blow it off. Receive it. Receive it. Take it for what it is, a genuine expression of appreciation and it may need to be reciprocated it may not be reciprocated it may just simply need to be received where you say thank you it means so much to me that you appreciate me you know what happens when we have those kind of relationships our affection for one another deepens and we're able to act for the benefit of others less hesitantly and more enthusiastically. We're able to, even when we disagree, be gracious and be kind. We're able to display the love of Christ toward one another in such a way that God is glorified. Amen? We do all of this because of the overwhelming, never-ending Reckless love of God. He chased you down. He chose you. He found you. Jesus' example of the sheep in the fold and the one that's lost. He left the 99 to went for the one. He loves you. And because He loves you, we can love one another. Mm-hmm.